Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus 17, 1 through 16. I believe that's page 69 in your pew Bibles, if you have those handy. Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If your Bible still, if it's not open, turn it to Exodus 17. That's where we'll be this morning, as we just read out of. And as Pastor Shane did say yesterday, earlier, sorry, my brain's off a little bit. He said we had Pastor Nick who preached last week, and so I do have some bad news. If you are expecting me to bring out my Romanian accent, I, I'm going to have to disappoint you because it's not, it's not there. Um, but I'm excited to do this this morning. I'm excited for this opportunity. As many of you know, our church has been walking through the books of book of Exodus. And if you haven't been here the past few months, I'm just going to give you a very short recap of everything from the beginning of the Exodus up till now. So you understand where we're at, okay, where we're coming from. Joseph was the prince of Egypt. His father, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, brought all of Joseph's brothers to Egypt. And then we see the Abrahamic covenant come to fruition. Remember, Abraham told God several things. He promised him several things. One of the things that he promised him was land, right? What other things did 
God promised Abraham. Right? He promised him uh, descendants, right? He said, you have as many descendants as the stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. Okay? And he also promised him that he would bless who he blessed, curse who he cursed. In other words, I have your back. Those are the promises that God gave to Abraham. And we see that coming to fruition. Verse 7 of chapter 1, the descendants of Abraham and Jacob are multiplying like crazy. That verse tells us that after Joseph dies, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then the next verse, verse 8, tells us that a new king, a new pharaoh, arose over Egypt. But this pharaoh did not know Joseph. All that Pharaoh knew was that there were a lot of those Hebrews, a lot of those Israelites, and not as many Egyptians. And so what that Pharaoh did is he enslaved the Israelites, right? But the Hebrews were still multiplying. So Pharaoh hatched a plan to kill all the sons of the people of Israel, to cast them into the Nile. And through the providence of God, Moses, a Hebrew, an Israelite, was saved by Pharaoh's daughter and raised up in the house of Egypt. And years later, God calls Moses, the Hebrew who was raised Egyptian, to deliver his own people out of the hand of Pharaoh, where he grew up. To do this, God sent ten plagues upon the Egyptian people so that they would let his people go. The last plague, the death of the firstborn, is finally the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. That is the one where Pharaoh said, not only go, Go and take everything. Take what we have. So finally, the Israelites are getting out of Egypt and making their way to the promised land. Now, what's the promised land? We mentioned the things that God promised to Abraham, right? One of them was land. This is the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Okay, and so they're making their way to this land that is theirs, that God said he's going to give them. And as they're making their way to the promised land, the Red Sea parts, they walk through on dry land. And yet after time after time, after God blesses them, Israel does what? Grumbles, right? And as they're about to come up on Mount Sinai, that is where we pick up this morning. And so there's a few points, main points that I think we get from today's text. And the first one, the first half, is that God gives Israel victory over thirst. 17.1, let's read that together. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and 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 camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. If this sounds familiar, it's because they had a similar experience back in chapter 15. So this is not new for them when they reached the, the bitter waters of Marah. Once again, they're out in the wilderness and they are seeking water. Rephidim, the place where they camped at, means resting place. But as resting places go, this is not uh, very exciting. Not a very fun resting place to be at because they ain't got no water, right? Not somewhere we would want to stay for a night. By now, the Israelites ought to have known how to handle this situation. They had been there before. They had been through this. They should know how to act. What they should have done is they should have gathered for prayer. They should have waited for God to provide. But instead, they did what they normally do, which is what? Again, they grumble. That's what they do. 
whenever I was younger, I never really understood the Israelites being lost in the, in the wilderness. Because I was always like, you know, I knew they didn't have water. They were struggling to find stuff to eat. I was like, why can't they find stuff in the jungle? Like, there's, there's always stuff in the jungle, right? I thought the wilderness, I'm thinking trees. I'm thinking the woods behind my house. I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, Tarzan, basically, is what I was thinking, okay? It wasn't until later I figured out that that was not the case. They weren't lost in the, the wilderness, the woods, swinging from vines. No, they were out in the desert, and I say all that to explain that this wilderness here, it is very hot. It is very dry. Whenever it's 75 in here, everybody's like, right? Everybody's mad. Wanted to end at like 1130. It was very, very hot, very dry. These people were probably very hot, very dried out, possibly dehydrated. They thought they were going to die. So they quarreled with Moses. They said, give us a drink. Once again, they go to Moses, right? They find fault with Moses. They quarreled with him. Now, this is different than the previous time. The previous times, they, they grumbled with Moses, right? But this time, it's quarreled. And that's a bit of a stronger word. They had reached a new level of hostility, right? So they grumble, they grumble, and now they quarrel with him. So they're a little bit angrier than they were before. So it's not exactly the same. It's a little bit of a higher level. Although they picked a fight with Moses, their real argument was not with him. Their fight that they wanted to pick wasn't really with Moses. It was really with God. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? He had led Israel to Rephidim, not because he knew that that's where water was, but because that's where God told him to go. And so in rejecting Moses, in quarreling with Moses, they weren't really rejecting him. They were really rejecting God. That's what they were doing. Their bone to pick was not truly with Moses. They were testing God. Psalm 95, 7 through 9 says this, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So the Israelites' dissatisfaction showed that they were really disappointed with God. It wasn't with Moses. In other words, just like them, our complaints about whatever, they go straight to the top. Their complaints weren't with him. They weren't with the wife. They were really with God. They were dissatisfied with how God was treating them, with how God was taking care of them. That's where their problem really was. And whatever the reason may be for our discontent or their discontent, what it really shows is that we're not satisfied with what God has given us. That's what it all boils down to. That's what it comes down to. We're not satisfied with what God has given us. So Moses, he asked the Lord, what am I supposed to do? They're going to kill me. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. This is, he didn't say it just like that. Talked a little bit different than me. But the Lord said to Moses, hey, Moses, remember that staff you used to strike the Nile River? Take that staff, strike the rock at Horeb, and the people will have water to drink. And he called that place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. 
So God quenched his people's thirst and satisfied them physically once again. Unfaithful, grumbling Israel, once again satisfied by the Lord, once again saved by the Lord. God gave them victory over their thirst. And I worded it that way for a specific reason you'll see in a second. But what did that water prove? What did Moses striking the rock and water coming out of that, what did that prove? Well, it really proved everything about God that the Israelites were calling into question. Remember, they were demanding his provision, demanding that he provides for him. Okay? They were denying his protection, and they were doubting his presence. You bring us out here all the way to kill us. God's not going to save us. God's not going to provide for us. We're going to die out here. Should have just kept in slavery. This right here proved everything that they were calling into question about God. The water flowing from the rock, from the rock proved all these things. It proved that God had the power to provide. And not only was he their provider, but he was their protector. Instead of hearing their grumblings and striking them down where they stood or swallowing them up in the ground, as we've talked about before, he gave them water. Instead of immediate judgment for their sins, he subjected himself to judgment. Finally, the rock was proof of God's presence. It was proof that God was with them. The water flowing from the rock, it doesn't prove that Moses is real good with that staff. It proves that God is with them, that he's going to provide for them, he's going to protect them, and that his presence is with them. The Israelites wanted to know if God was with them or not. I think it's safe to say they got their answer. God gave Israel victory over their thirst. I think that's the first main point that we see in today's text. God gave Israel victory over their thirst. The second point that I think we get from today's text is that God quenches Israel's thirst for victory. Verses 8 through 16, we see Israel in this battle with Amalek. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt, their first enemies that they faced were not external, but they were internal. Their struggle was the war within, the battle that is waged in every human heart. The difficulties they encountered at, at Marah, the desert of sin at Massa, at Meribah, and Rephidim now, they weren't caused by their outward circumstances primarily, but they were caused by their own disbelief, their own discontent. They didn't trust God to provide. And as a result, they were divided. They were discouraged. And then out of nowhere, they were attacked from the outside by an enemy. Verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This was the first military battle on Israel's long, long, long road to the promised land. But who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites were nomads who traced their lineage all the way back to Jacob's brother Esau. So remember, the people, the Israelites, 
right? They get their name from who? Jacob, right? Jacob was Israel. His name was changed to Israel. So having his brother Esau, these Amalekites, they came from Esau, and there's a lot of tension between Jacob and Esau. It's clear that there's a lot of tension between these two people groups, right? A lot of long-standing tension between the two tribes. The Scripture doesn't tell us specifically why the Amalekites attacked them. They might have felt threatened by somebody coming into their land, as you would. Or they might have been trying to protect their water supply. Rephidim was an oasis, so the Amalekites might not have taken too kindly for people coming in and trying to take some water. And this was the first of many battles that God's people would fight before completing their conquest of the Promised Land. They had been saved out of Egypt by the strong hand of God. And they're on the way to the Promised Land, but to get there, now they're going to have to do something that they have never done before. Now they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to fight their way to the promised land. They've been attacked by the Amalekites. So the next day they offer a counterattack. Look at verses 9 through 11. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. Whenever he let them down, Amalek prevailed. Now it's true that we don't know exactly what Moses said or or did other than his hands while he was on the hillside. He could have been praying or he could have been doing something else. But nevertheless, his actions were a sign of his unmistakable dependence upon God to win the battle. In other words, Moses knew that the only way they win this thing, the only way they win this battle, is to rely on God. Israel wasn't going to win it by their uh, brute strength, by their skill. Moses knew that the only way they win this battle is to depend on God. Moses was holding his staff, the instrument of divine power. And by holding it up to heaven, he was appealing for God to defend his people. But Moses was also in the posture for prayer. When he was standing, he was standing with his arms raised to God. And the Israelites, whenever they uh, prayed, they generally stood lifting their hands to offer praises and petitions to God. For example, uh, when God brought an end to the plague of hail, Moses said to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 29, he says, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The psalmist in uh, Psalm 63, 4 said, So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. So Moses was in a posture for prayer. Whether we call it prayer or not, when he stood with his arms up, he was appealing for God to show his power by saving his people. Moses had no misconceptions about who was really winning the battle. Moses knew. He knew who was doing the heavy lifting, he knew who was in control. He knew who was truly winning the battle for them. 
Look at verse 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The altar that Moses built was for God's honor. It wasn't designed to atone for sins. It was designed to give thanks to, to God for saving them, for providing a, a victory, their first victory. By the grace of God, Israel had won this battle. And the only proper way to respond was by giving thanks to God. Like I said, Moses had no misconceptions about who was really winning this battle. The Israelites had worshipped God for their salvation back at the Red Sea. And now they needed to worship him again, placing their offerings on Moses' altar. It was only a small victory on the way to the promised land, but it was still worthy of worship, worthy of thanksgiving to God. And I too think that we should not only praise God for our salvation in Christ, but for every victory and our struggle against sin, temptation, We should praise the Lord for those things, just as the Israelites did. Not just for saving us, but for every victory in our lives. The Lord is my banner. That's how Moses summarized what Israel learned from their fight with the Amalekites. A banner is a military standard, a piece of cloth bearing uh, an army insignia and raised on a pole. And so soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it also helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. As long as their banner is still flying, they know that they have not been defeated, that the battle's not lost. Think about the military today, how important it is to look up and see the stars and the stripes waving in the wind. Imagine you're an Israelite fighting this battle, bleeding, sweating, fighting just for your people to stay alive, not be extinguished. And from time to time during this battle, you just take a look up to the top of the hill and you see Moses' hands raised with a staff in his hand. The Lord is my banner. If you're in that battle and you're fighting and you're bleeding and you're sweating and you're fighting for your people and you look up there and you see that, man, I'll use a, a phrase that the guy at camp, he said this. He said, if that doesn't fire you up, your wood's wet. And that's true. The Israelites looking up there and seeing Moses, hands raised, staff in hand, showing that the Lord is their banner. That symbol of the Lord's power and provision and protection over them. And it wasn't Moses. Moses wasn't their banner, the staff wasn't their banner. 
Moses was pointing them to the real source of their courage, of their strength. He was pointing them directly to God. This was to be their rallying cry from now on. The Lord is my banner. Application. I have a, several application points. Uh, a lot of them aren't, aren't typed up, but your small groups will hit these pretty good. The first application that I think we have from this text is to recognize God's role, not only in this text specifically, but also in our lives. In other words, recognize that you, that I, that we're not the hero of our life, of this text. Moses wasn't the hero. Joshua wasn't the hero. Recognize that God is the hero of every story. Noah and his family didn't survive because he was real good at building boats. Abraham didn't become a great nation because of how cool he was. David didn't win every battle because he was an incredible military commander. Israel didn't win the battle against Amalek because Joshua was, was just smarter than them. In all of those cases, and in ours, those people were not the hero. God is the hero of those stories. God is the hero of this story. God is the hero of your story. And we need to recognize that. God saved Noah and his family from the flood. Abraham became a great nation because God chose him. David won every battle because God was on his side. Joshua, Moses, and the rest of the Israelites won because God was on their side. It's not because of you. It's not because of us. It's because of God. Moses knew why they won the battle, why they were blessed. Uh, a lot of us here, you know, we're doing, we're doing pretty well in life, we would say. But I think too often we label people or ourselves as self-made. Did it all on your own. Fought through adversity. Yeah you, yeah, you definitely fought through adversity. But you did not do it without help. You did not do it on your own. In reality, God did it on his own. This week, let's, let's really make a focus on recognizing that God is the hero. Let's recognize that God is the hero this week. The second application point I think that we get from this text is that we need to remember where you came from so that you can remember how far God has brought you. My parents and I, we listened to a sermon by Fody Balkum a while back. And I, I really looked to find it. I, I couldn't find it, but he put it some, in some way like this. You don't want to forget where you came from. You don't want to forget all the past sins you've committed because you want to remember where you came from so you can see how far the Lord has brought you. 
See what he has brought you out of. See what he has done in your life. The Israelites, as we've talked about, they have a selective memory disorder, which means they just remember what they want to remember, right? All these times that God has saved them, preserved them, protected them, they forget, right? They forget and then they grumble and the cycle repeats again. If they had remembered what God had done for them, they wouldn't be in this position. Let's read verse, sorry, let's read verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And this point's not up there, but wouldn't you like to have some friends like Aaron and Hur? Wouldn't you like to have some people like that? Now, I realize in our daily lives, we're not um, standing on top of hills as battles are going on and raising our hands. That's not a regular thing that we do, right? But my point is, we do need people in our lives like Aaron and like her who will lift us up. Moses could not do it on his own. He grew weary as we do, right? So it's very, very important that we have people in our lives who will come alongside us and will help lift our arms up in praise to God. Wouldn't you like to have some friends like Aaron and her? The third point, application point I think we get. Here in the Old Testament, God has quenched Israel's thirst physically. And in the New Testament... God quenched people's thirst spiritually. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking of this exact text, and he said this. He said, They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Scripture says they did not enter their rest. They drank from the spiritual rock that was Christ, but it appears they did not drink the living water that Jesus offered. In John 4.10, Jesus is speaking with the Samarian woman at the well, and he said this, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Israelites, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, that with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They didn't drink the living water that Jesus offered later. So I have a question for you today that I want you to think about. Have you tasted the living water that Jesus provides? Have you tasted the living water 
If not, you're going to end up like those Israelites, the ones that God was not pleased with. That's a scary thing. Scary thing to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. But if you have, if you've tasted that living water, man, there's nothing else, nothing else that you will ever have to worry about. If you've tasted that living water, you will spend eternity in heaven with Christ. I tell the students all of the time, friendship with God is the greatest thing that there is. There is nothing better. If you drink that living water, you have friendship with God. You're no longer an enemy of God. You were an enemy of God, and you repented. You trusted Christ's work on the cross as your own. So now you went from enemy of God to friend of God, and not only friend of God, but child of God. So if you've drank that spiritual, that, that living water, rejoice. Can you say, the Lord is my banner? Is the Lord the thing when you're in the trenches and you're fighting and you're in anything? Is it the thing that you look to on the top of the hill? Do you look to the Lord to provide your hope? to keep you going. Can you say the Lord is my banner and really mean it? I hope you can. If you can't, Scripture says you're, you're apart from God, you're separated from God. And so what you need to do in order to, to, to fix that is repent, which means to turn from your sins, to trust that what Jesus came down and did lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died, trust that he did that for you. Repent, trust Christ's work on the cross as your own. If you do that, you will taste the living water. You will taste the living water and there is nothing greater than that. gave the Israelites victory over their thirst and over the Amalekites and ultimately wants to give us victory in Christ over sin and death and so the appeal's been made have you repented and trusted Christ have you tasted the living water that Jesus offers you if not you need to repent let's pray Father we acknowledge your goodness in our lives we're thankful for the word and that you've given us the written word. We know that the Old Testament is written for our instruction, for our encouragement. Father, we see the example of the Israelites and we recognize that we are like them. We grumble, not against people so much as against you. We are not satisfied sometimes with how you uh, take care of us and we lack trust, we lack faith. Father, we... 
We act like you're not among us by how we handle life and are grumbling and not trusting you. But just as you were faithful to the Israelites, you have been faithful to us. Help us to trust you in all things. Help us to trust you this week as we struggle with loss and mourning and grieving. And Father, save those who are yet to call out to Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would take the message and use it for the building up of your kingdom. May lost people be saved even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Sunday morning services at Beaver Baptist Church. We are currently studying the book of Exodus. If you have any questions about today's message, or would like more information about our church, call us at 901-837-2904. You can also visit our website at beaverbaptist.com.